0: You're listening to episode 76 of the Tennis Files podcast with special guest Brad Stein.
1: Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mirban Iranshad. Hey everyone, welcome to
0: another fantastic episode of the Tennis Files podcast, if I do say so myself. On the show today, we have Brad Stein, who is a world-class tennis coach. He has coached some incredible players. He actually coached Jim Courier, who is world number one, has won multiple Grand Slam titles. And he is currently the coach of Kevin Anderson, who is, I believe, number six in the world right now. So it's very cool to talk to a incredible coach like this who has had so many great experiences with top Players. He also coached the Junior Davis Cup team with Pete Sampras, Courier as well, uh, Todd Martin, David Wheaton, Jeff Tarango, and so forth. Um, So, we're going to get into the specifics of Brad's career and how he came to coach the Junior Davis Cup team and also that he played and coached at Fresno State and how he was able to develop Jim Courier and also improve Kevin Anderson's career. And Brad's a great guy, and I really, really enjoyed asking him questions. talking with him. And it was really great to connect through a great listener uh, of ours. Charlie Warner connected me with Brad. And uh, so it it was really a pleasure to speak with Brad. And I know you'll learn a lot from this interview, uh, diving deep into the careers of some of the greatest players in the world that Brad has had the pleasure of coaching. So I think you'll really enjoy this episode. And without further ado, here is my interview with Brad Stein. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files podcast. I'm really uh, proud and honored to have Coach Brad Stein on the podcast today. And for those of you who don't know, Brad is currently the coach of uh, world number six, I believe, Kevin Anderson, who's one of my favorite players. And we're going to get into a lot of uh, about uh, Brad's career as well as the players that he's coached. Um, but to give you some background on Brad, he, in addition to coaching uh, world number six, Kevin Anderson, Brad has coached Jim Courier, former world number Number one, he's also coached players like Andre Medvedev, Jonathan Stark, Marty Fish, Taylor Dent, a pair of great Americans players there, uh, Sebastian Grosjean, uh, Sargis Sargisian, and Byron Black. And Brad also played and coached at Fresno State and led Fresno to a, a top 20 D1 ranking, which is a fantastic accomplishment, given the depth of uh, college tennis. And Brad also was a U.S. national coach for the USTA and coached the U.S. junior national team, which as we'll get into, uh, had a ton of uh, incredible players from the U.S. And also big shout out to Charlie Warner, who Uh, connected me with Brad for this interview. So thank you, Charlie. But Brad, I really appreciate you coming onto the podcast and making uh, some time for us today.
2: No problem. I'm glad to be here. I'm impressed with your research.
0: Thank you. Yeah. First question for you, Brad, I saw on your ATP tour profile that you like to snowboard. So where's your favorite place to go snowboarding?
2: Oh, that's a a good question because I just spent this last weekend in Colorado at uh, Copper Mountain with two of my best friends. One of who, uh, one of whom is the uh, the men's assistant coach at the University of Oklahoma, and my youngest son. I invited my other two kids, but uh, they couldn't get off work. So, and it was amazing. Actually, it was the first time that I snowboarded outside of uh, California. We have a little mountain just east of Fresno that's about an hour and twenty minute drive called China Peak, which is when you live in Fresno, it's kind of a little golden nugget that you get to enjoy. Hour and twenty minutes up the hill, and you can snowboard or ski. You know, for for a full day and drive back home and be back at your place, have a beer and hang out and have dinner with your family. It's, so it's a great place. So that's where we go most of the time. We've also, we've spent time in Mammoth and, and uh, Tahoe, but this was the first time that we got out of California. And it was really spectacular.
0: Well, wow, I'm glad you enjoyed that, Brad. And yeah, that's pretty incredible, you know, for especially for somebody like me on the East Coast, I wouldn't equate California to skiing and snowboarding so that's really cool that you have that resource there and I mean do you do you snowboard on like the 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 blacks and and tough courses like that
2: I wish I could keep up with my kids my my two boys especially basically kill it Mm. they can go anywhere and do just about anything but uh yeah we were we were skiing I'm I'm a I'm a black diamond guy. I can do blacks. I do blacks in the morning. And then when I get tired in the afternoon, I got to go to the blues.
0: Wow. You're you're a man living on the edge here. Wow. Um, yeah, that, that, that's cool, Brad. I mean, I remember actually trying snowboarding for the first time once when I was playing college tennis and then I felt like I was going to break my ankle. So then I went to the, uh, to the cabin and just read a Burton snowboarding magazine for like two hours. And I was, I was too scared, but (laughs) you're a better man than me. Uh, (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, I didn't want my coach to yell at me. So that's pretty much why, but Brad shifting on a tennis, of course, uh, tell me about, and the audience too, obviously about your first memory of actually hitting a tennis ball.
2: Wow. My first memory of hitting a tennis ball. I, I was a very late bloomer in tennis. I was a baseball player when I was younger and I got into tennis late. I started playing tennis around 14, 14 and a half. And I played my first tournament ever at 15. I'm not sure I can clearly remember the first time I ever hit balls, but I do remember that my first year playing junior tennis in Northern California, I won one first round match. And back in those days, there were no back draws. So, so it was, uh, you know, play a match and go home. And the only match I won, I played at, at Berkeley tennis club. And my grandmother was there. It was the only time she ever saw me play tennis and she saw me win.
0: Wow. And and you're still in the game, Brad. That's am- an amazing <laughs> testament to how much you love tennis. That's incredible. So I mean, yeah. So you know, building on that, I mean, you obviously faced so many uh, tough losses there as uh, when you first started. So what kept you in the game?
2: Um, you know, I, I I really enjoyed I really enjoyed the individuality of it uh, early on. You know, and and uh, I I made I made pretty fast progress. I, I was never a great junior player. I mean, to be honest with you, I wasn't. I wasn't by any means a great collegiate player. But I, I got good instruction when I was younger. I, I mechanically, technically, I actually played pretty well. I, I would like to think, and and I had a, I had a good, I had a pretty good mind for the game. I, I, I feel like I feel like where I really really made some enormous progress, you know, as a player, and then and then also translated that later on to coaching. Was during my junior college time. In fact, when I was playing junior college tennis, junior college was very, very good. I played at a school in in uh, Redwood City called uh, Kenyatta Junior College. It's about eight or ten miles north of Stanford. And uh, at the same time that I was playing there, just to give a kind of perspective, Brad Gilbert was playing at Foothill Junior College, which was about 20-25 miles south of where we were. They were our main rivals. But junior college tennis at that time was very, very strong, and we were lucky to have a phenomenal coach, a guy named Rich Anderson, who at that time was coaching both a men's and a women's player that were both in the top 100. I think uh, the guy that he was coaching, Eric Van Dylan was top 50 at the, at the time when, when he was there or when I was there at the school and Rich was a phenomenal technician of the game and also tactician of the game and I feel like I really 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 grew a lot during that time that I was there with him and and I I still stay in touch with Rich a little bit and he's still someone that I consider some of the concepts and and, uh, things that I do as a coach are are still based on things that I learned from Rich back in those days.
0: Uh, That's wonderful stuff Brad I appreciate that and so uh, you know you mentioned obviously that you that you grew a lot while you know in in college at Fresno so can you you kind of expound upon that and maybe give us a couple things that or the the biggest thing that helped you you know during college that that you learned from your coach
2: I mean for me for me the things that I got out of that were were more um there were some some definite technical things footwork things setups for the ball uh you know being able to generate and and create more power and how you were hitting the ball looking for those kind of things the technical aspects of the swing because again like I said Rich was Rich was just a phenomenal technician when it came to teaching the game. And so I, I felt like I really improved. I really improved in those areas a lot, became a much more offensive, much more aggressive player and, and started recognizing more patterns of play on the court. And so tactically I improved a lot also. And then, you know, as anybody that played collegiate tennis knows, I mean, it's, it's uh, kind of trial by fire. You, you play so many matches, and back in those days, we weren't limited to the number of uh, of matches that we could play by the NCAA. So, we were playing a ton, and uh, you, you just you know you just got better. You got better through competing.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, Brad. And so, obviously, you went from playing at Fresno to then later coaching. I mean, did you notice any? big things that changed, you know, from when you were playing to when you're coaching?
2: The biggest thing for me was that, you know, I, I started very early uh, coaching. I was the head coach at Fresno State at 26 years of age. And I had guys on my team that were only three years younger than me. So for me, the, the biggest thing was was creating an atmosphere of respect between the players and the coach. And I feel like when I first started out, because I kind of was forced to, because of my age, I had, be, I had to be pretty disciplined with the guys. I was a, I was a bit of a disciplinarian as a coach and, and was pretty demanding with the guys in relationship to their conduct and their, their attitudes and their presentation on the court and, and how they dealt with me and how I dealt with them.
0: Gotcha. That, that's, uh, I mean, that's obviously very important. And to step back a little bit before Fresno, I was curious too, you know, I mean, it's not easy to become a coach, you know, at a, a D1 school. So can you talk to, uh, talk about your career after you graduated from, from uh, college and then how you got into, you know, where you coach and then how you eventually got the job at Fresno?
2: I was very lucky. Honestly, I was very lucky at that time. I, I spent three years as the assistant coach at Fresno State. And you know, obviously, had played at Fresno State, and within our conference in Fresno, Greg Patton, General Patton, we call him, was the coach at UC Irvine at that time, and and Greg was a bit of a legend, and he had really good teams at Irvine. They were pretty consistently in the top 15, sometimes top 10 in the nation. So Greg knew me and saw me as a player when I was at Fresno State, and you know, I wasn't I wasn't the greatest player, but I was a pretty tenacious player, and and I, I think that that stuck out in his mind. And then when I became the assistant coach at Fresno State, Greg and I got a chance to communicate and get to know each other a little bit better and greg was the greg became the head coach for the u.s junior national team which back in those days was called the junior davis cup team and he contacted me and basically sold me on the idea of of becoming his assistant for that program and that's really that's really the the biggest decision that i made in my life because it it put me in contact with, with Jim Courier and the entire generation of guys that played during that time, Pete Sampras, Michael Chang, Todd Martin, Jonathan Stark, Jared Palmer, Jeff Tarango, couldn't name it. So who's who of American tennis players from from that generation that basically all made the top 100. And it, Greg really put me in a position to develop relationship with, relationships with those guys and, and um, and be able to work with them. And that was really the the main thing that, that carried over and put me in a position to be able to coach Jim later on was because we had developed that relationship through the Junior Davis Cup team.
0: Yeah, just like you said, incredible connections. Uh, it's kind of the ripple effect from, from making that choice and getting that opportunity, which is uh, incredible. And obviously, as you mentioned, I mean, you, you had on the J- U.S. Junior National Team, Courier, not Connors. Courier, uh, Sampras, Washington, Martin, Stark, uh, Palmer, Wheaton, and Tarango. I think I might have got most of them at least. But when you were coaching them, did you think that they would all become such great players and all reach the top one hundred?
2: You know, it's hard. It's hard to, it's hard to make that prediction. I think mm it's. Mm-hmm. It's such a, it's such a difficult road to, to actually make it to the top hundred. And, you know, a number of those guys went in different directions, Jim and Pete and Chang all turned pro before going to college. The rest of those guys all went to college for at least a year or two, if not more. And so for them to have taken different paths and different roads, but all have still ended up in the top hundred was, was pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing generation. I was very, very lucky to get to be associated with, with that generation and those guys and get to know all those guys really closely and then get to coach some of them, you know, later on, on the tour, you know, I I mean, if, if you had asked me in the moment, you know, back then of the guys that were there, who was going to make top 100, I wouldn't have predicted that every single one of those guys was going to make top 100. I I always think it's funny because one of the guys that we didn't mention that was in that group was Al Parker, who at that time, Al Parker was the most dominant player in, in American junior tennis. And I, I thought Al Parker was going to be a shoe in to make the top 100 and, And uh, he never, he never did at all. He was a great college player at the University of Georgia and, and, you know, has gone on and and been a really successful business person afterwards. But, but I really thought that he was a guy that would, would make top hundred for sure. So it's just hard to say at that level, you know, when the guys are in the juniors, just like the kids that we have now, my association with the USTA, the last few years before I started working with Kevin, you know, as good as the kids are, it's really hard to say that someone is going to be an absolute for sure guy in the top hundred.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. And uh, just to use Al Parker as a test case, are there any particular reasons why, because I haven't followed his career closely or anything, but any particular reasons why you think he didn't make the top 100?
2: I mean, it's hard to say. I think, I think that he, you know, he's a Georgia guy who went to the university of Georgia. He played number one at Georgia. And I think that, you know, his, his game was really mature when he first went to college and, and um, he was, he was dominating junior tennis. He was one of the most dominant guys in collegiate tennis through his four years there. And and I think that he just didn't really develop the rest of his game as much. You know, he kind of, he kind of finished playing pretty much the same game that he, that he entered college with. So maybe that's, you know, maybe that's what kind of held him back. There may have been, I mean, I never spoke to Al about it, so I don't know, but, you know, maybe there was a lack of desire on his part to really make the commitment to to want to be at that level, you know, where the other guys maybe were pushing a little bit harder and wanted it a little bit more.
0: Yeah, well, those are, I mean, that's really helpful for everyone just to kind of see, you know, what th- elements uh, we might be you know, lacking or maybe we're not pushing enough or we're not developing our games, uh, trying to improve every day, whatever is the case. But, yeah, that's interesting to hear about. And so a couple of questions about the group, a couple more anyways. I was curious to get your take on who, you know, when you are working with them out of this uh, Junior Davis Cup team or Junior uh, National team, who had the most talent, do you think? And then who worked the hardest?
2: Man, that's a tough question. Well, I mean, the most talented guy, it, it's going to be pretty, you know, simple to say probably was Pete. Pete was the guy that was coming up and he was playing up in his age groups and he wasn't dominating. It was was funny because in the juniors, you know, if you look back, I don't think Pete never won a national title in in juniors, but he was always playing up a little bit. And so that kind of like was a, was a different situation. We had some guys, like one of the guys who uh, you left out of the list, Chris Garner, who's now the, who's now the men's coach at uh, Navy. I mean, he was, he was just an absolute workhorse, practice matches, everything. I would put him up there and, and. Jim Courier, obviously, even in the juniors. I mean, those guys—they just—they just crushed it every day in training and in practice. They loved it.
0: Wow, uh, that's really cool, actually. Yeah, my um, my college tennis coach is actually now the head of women's uh, coach at Navy. So, yeah, it's good to get to hear about the the men's side having a very accomplished coach there. And was there somebody in that list that you found was? super competitive. I know Tarango has a reputation, but you know, who, who was like really competitive every day, just uh, grinding and and trying to win every single point out there. Or was that just everyone?
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think, I think one of the reasons that all those guys ended up doing as well as they did was because they were, they were all in that category a little bit and they were all, a little bit. They all they all had a little bit of a chip on their shoulder in a way about the success of anybody else that was around them, and and so it was constantly driving them and pushing them to try and be better. and And it was such a large group. It was such a large group, and they were all so gifted. They were all so talented as players that that they were all capable of stepping up to the next level on a consistent basis. And so, as one of them started kind of progressing and pulling away a little bit it pushed the other guys to keep up. And I think that continued through the majority of their, of their careers. You know, I mean, I I think guys, they just felt like, like, you know, those are the guys that always been their peers. And they always felt like, you know, I can compete with those guys.
0: Awesome stuff, Brad. Appreciate that. And one last question about the junior national team. I know, obviously, each player is their own, uh, they're, they're each their own individual, and they have different things they need to work on. But Were there any particular skills or or perhaps what were the most important skills that you and Greg uh, and the team focused on developing in these great players during their junior career?
2: I mean, I'll tell you, I I give an enormous amount of credit to those guys' success to Greg Patton. Greg just created an atmosphere and a culture, and you've got to remember that that program was primarily a summer program back in those days. It wasn't a year round training program like we have now with player development. It, it was uh, it was primarily a summer program. And, and uh, we spent almost <laughs> the entirety of the summer with those guys from the start of the summer until the end and finishing up at the U S open U S open was kind of the crown jewel for the guys to, to, uh, to, to, peak for and be prepared for at the end of the summer. But Greg created a culture um, that, that was just so motivating to everybody. He constantly, constantly pushed the idea that these guys were representing their country, that they were part of U.S. tennis, that they had a responsibility in um, how they competed and how they conducted themselves. Back in those days, one of the things that I thought was really great was that um, the guys all wore uniforms. There was a, there was a you know, team uniform for being on the national team. So everybody knew who you were. You were kind of, you had a target on your back and everybody didn't want to get hit when they were wearing that target, you know? So they were, they were really competing to their utmost to try and make the best presentation that they could in representing the national team and national program and those kind of things. And, and Greg really, really, really pushed that on a consistent basis with a, a great team mentality and, and created an atmosphere of pride and, and guys, the guys really bought into that. The guys really bought into that and they loved being part of the team. And I think most of those guys that you talk to um, even, you know, if you talk to Martin Blackman, who's, you know, obviously the head of PD now, you know, I think he'll tell you that those were some of the most impactful years of his, of his life. He was part of that junior national team also back in those days. on junior Davis cup, pretty much everybody from that, from that generation that, that made top hundred or or even if they didn't make top hundred, I think that, that time frame really taught them a lot about about commitment and dedication and desire and and I think the, the vast majority of guys that played as part of that program went on to very successful careers in whatever they chose to go into.
0: Yeah, it's very very inspiring stuff from Greg and re- re- all of you. And uh, yeah, speaking of Martin Blackman, I actually had him on episode thirty five of the podcast. If anyone wants to check that out, it's a, definitely a great episode there. But you know, going back to you coaching at uh, at Fresno State um, Brad I mean you took that program to a top 20 division one ranking which as I mentioned at the outset of the show is clearly not easy so what what kind of changes did you make to the program when you became a head coach in 85 I know you talked about um, becoming more disciplined but um, you know any other changes uh, that caused the program to to break out into the uh, top 20.
2: Yeah, I mean, again, you know, I I think that Greg really taught me a lot about how I wanted to coach my team and what I wanted to do with my team. And, and I I really learned from, from spending time with him and being part of that Junior Davis Cup team. And I tried to apply a lot of those uh, concepts and a lot of that atmosphere and create that culture with our guys, which wasn't as common back then. Now, it's a little bit more common, but I also implemented a a structure of, of giving actual like private lessons to the top eight guys on my team throughout the week. So I would give each guy two lessons a week to work just on specific, specific technical or tactical things to try and improve them. And I tried to be, you know, Fresno at that time. And to this day, really, you know, it's not the easiest place in the world to recruit to. And I started right away to try to recruit a little bit more out of our backyard and, and, and try and draw a little bit more on guys from NorCal and I really made an effort to try, and, to try and get guys that I could see had ability but maybe weren't being as successful as they needed or wanted to be at the time that I felt I could build on their, on the base of their games and try and help them become better players. And we were successful at that, you know, and I think we, we got a lot of guys to improve and and we, we tried to sell guys all the time on the fact that if we wanted to be a better program and we wanted to crack the top 25 in the country, that we were going to have to beat teams that on paper we weren't supposed to beat. And we started trying to make that be kind of a, a norm for us that when we went into the matches playing uh, teams that, that on paper were, you know, ranked higher than us, or were expected to beat us that, that we were going to go in there and, and really out-compete those kind of teams and, and find a way to win those matches. Cause that's the only way that we could crack into the top, you know, into the top 25. So, you know, there's probably a little bit of luck involved in there. I, I like to think there was some good technical and tactical coaching that went along with that. And I think that we created a culture and the guys that we had on the team really bought into that culture. And And as we, you know, as we had success, that success built on itself and, and kind of, you know, created that, that, uh, that atmosphere and maintained it. And, uh, you know, what I, what I was able to do, I was only at Fresno State for five years, but our last three years, we were in the top 25 in the nation. and, And my last year, I think we finished the year, my last year, ranked 16 or 17 in the country. And then a little known fact, you know, Peter Smith came in after me, who's obviously been one of the most successful coaches in collegiate tennis. And Peter took what I had created at Fresno State and just pushed it to another level, which I was really happy to see. You know, I mean, I was as an alumni and a former coach at Fresno State, I I definitely loved seeing Fresno continue to be successful. And Peter did a great job there and actually got the team at one point to be four in the country, I think, and had a a guy that uh, made NCAA finals as an individual player.
0: Wow, that's just that's amazing, and and again, it's really motivating to hear. I mean, the the type of culture that you fostered in, in there uh, it's, it's 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 just motivating for me to to hear about and thinking about uh, outworking people and representing your school and your country. So that's great stuff there. So, Brad, uh, obviously, I, I know that you forged uh, great connections with all the great players. And then you eventually, through the, those connections, um, was able to uh, the coach uh, Jim Courier to some incredible uh, accomplishments, of course. But can you talk to us a little bit more about how exactly you both ended up agreeing to work together on the tour?
2: Yeah, what had happened, it, you know, it's kind of funny. I had actually, Pete Sampras's coach, uh, Pete Fisher, had contacted me about two years earlier or 18 months earlier before I started working with Jim or agreed to start working with Jim and had asked me about working with Pete and being the genius that I am, I turned him down. And so I was, I had, I had kind of gotten a bump up in, in uh, my position with the USTA. And I had gotten a raise at Fresno state and I felt pretty secure in what I was doing. And Pete was just starting out at that time. And I think he'd maybe qualified for one event or something, you know? And, and so, you know, 18 months later or so, I got a phone call from Tom Gullickson who at that time was the, the head of men's tennis for player development. And, um, he said that, uh, Jim had made a coaching change and was going to start working with, uh, Jose Higueras. And, um, Jose wasn't really keen on the idea of traveling a ton and they wanted someone that could work in association with Jose, but do most of the traveling and, having turned down that position with Pete and seeing where Pete was at that time, you know, I, I, I definitely wanted to take that opportunity and do that. And I had always felt that, that, you know, I really wanted to be at the pro level. I felt like if I had been a basketball coach, I would have wanted to coach at the NBA level. If I'd been a football coach, I would have wanted to coach at the NFL level just to experience that at least, you know, and see where it was at. And so when that opportunity came along the second time uh, with Jim, I mean, I, I jumped at it. So I went down and spent some time in Palm Springs with Jim and Jose together. And Jose was really the one who, at that time, kind of mapped out a plan of what what we you know what we wanted to do with jim and and gave us some direction and and then kind of put the responsibility on me to to implement that and make that happen as we traveled throughout the year and you know we were we were obviously i was very motivated, really excited to be part of that. Jose was uh an amazing mentor for me at that point in my career just just helped me. You know, enormously to again improve my skills, both technically, tactically, in understanding in understanding the game at the next level. I think I brought I think I brought to the table a little bit of that mentality that I had had coaching at Fresno State, um, coming fresh away from being a head coach in a collegiate program where you're a little bit more aut- autonomous in your decision making and what you what you get to do and how you plan things out made me be a little bit more willing to stand up to Jim and tell Jim what I wanted him to do. Uh, My demands on him from the standpoint of his, uh, his attitude and his, his conduct, I think were things that, that um, actually helped him build character as a competitor and as a player and, and all those things combined, you know, we, we were able to translate those into some really, really amazing success.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, so many Grand Slam titles and the number one ranking, etc. So Brad, when you transition, and this will probably help those who are lucky enough to transition to the pro tour as a coach from college or other jobs. But what were some of the most difficult elements of being a pro tour coach that you had to adapt to? And then how were you able to, to
1: do that?
2: You know, I, I've always said that I've always said the single biggest thing I missed from coaching collegiate tennis, which is an adjustment that you have to make when you go from, you know, from coaching from being a collegiate coach, as I was the coaching at the pro level was the ability to stand up in front of a group. And you can kind of, you can kind of rant and rave a little bit, you know, at your team and you can't do that as much with an individual player. You lose that ability. Um, and and so it's, you're, you can be pretty motivating. You can be pretty, uh, extreme in how you present things to a team when you're speaking to a group. And you just have to tone that down a little bit. And it's a little bit different when you're speaking to an individual. And that was, for me, that was probably the biggest change going into it right away. Like I said, it was also one of the things I missed. I I missed that. I missed the the enjoyment of standing in front of a group of guys that you knew were like-minded in striving for something to try and be the best they could be. And being able to kind of motivate those guys and being able to, to, to give speeches in a way, you know, that you, you can't really, you can't really stand in front of one guy and walk back and forth and scream and yell and go crazy a little bit. It's, you, you look like a goofball. It was definitely a little bit of a little bit of a different presentation from that standpoint And at the same time, still trying to get across the same message, you know, to to create a culture and create an atmosphere within that player that gives them an opportunity to compete at their best.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, Brad. Appreciate that. And so I'm just curious, um, as far as Jim, you know, what kind of personality uh, he had uh, specifically when training and then what kind of approach did you take to maximize his abilities in practice sessions?
2: Man, I don't want to throw Jim under the bus too much, but no, I'm just joking. <laughs> um, Jim basically wanted to kill everybody that was on the court all the time. Uh, um, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm saying that, I'm saying that from the standpoint of, you know, when G- Jim had a, Jim had a level of intensity and a level of commitment in, in what he did on the, in training and on the practice court. And it, and it carried over to the match court as well. But, he did not want to waste a second or any single ball in what he was doing. And so when you were training with him, you know, if you, if you left a short ball in the court or if you, you know, if you gave him anything that was sitting up in the court, I mean, he was going to try and tattoo you with a ball. And uh, Jim's intensity level was just off the charts. The, the, and, and to be honest with you, of all the guys I've coached, the guy who's come closest to matching that has been Kevin.
0: Yeah, yeah, Kevin uh love Kevin. Uh, I'm excited to ask you questions about him as well. But uh, as far as Jim too, I mean, I know that, you know, uh, his backhand it it seemed uh, unorthodox, but I was curious, you know, given that uh technique which is a little different from others, did Jim ever have any struggles uh with his backhand and did he ever make any any uh, subtle tweaks to it to help him with that stroke or anything?
1: daily live coverage begins monday may 20th stream it now with tennis channel plus to be there when it happens
2: yeah i don't think it's a secret that uh jim's backhand was less than conventional and i think i think jim would tell you today you know that anybody that tried to emulate his backhand was making a big mistake and um it, it was it was definitely <laughs> it. It was definitely a <laughs> bit of a liability and and you know, one of the genius things of, of Jose and what Jose implemented in when he first, early on in seeing Jim, was giving Jim a slice backhand. Jim, when he first started working with Jose and with myself, really had no slice backhand whatsoever. And Jose made Jim commit to the fact that we were going to practice and hit slice backhands every day for at least a year. And we did that. We did that every single day, regardless of whether it was a a match day or practice session or whatever we did there was 15 minutes of committed time to him hitting slice backhands and i'm a big believer in the fact that jim's development of the slice backhand is really the the primary thing that gave him an opportunity to become number one in the world because prior to that he had no ability to really play defense on the backhand side and once he developed that slice he became very adept at being able to defend from the backhand corner he used the slice he used the slice really effectively when guys came forward to dump it at their feet and then and then be able to find a forehand to pass off a lot of the time and and so that that the implementation of of his slice backhand i think is really really a key element at the same time that being said there, there were certain aspects to to that kind of unconventional backhand that really lent themselves to being um, to having advantages in what he did, uh, it had such a short backswing that he was able to take the return off the backhand side extremely early, and especially back in those days, you know, guys were hitting a lot more kick serves on the on the second serve, and Jim was able to really step up into the court and and jump on a kick serve on a very consistent basis with that backhand. So there were certain aspects to it that were good, but I, you know, I would say that in the course of number one players in the history of tennis, it it may be one of the the most questionable strokes of any guy that's ever gotten to number one. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense there. And so you you talked about setting aside committed time to work on the slice which i love because a lot of times players they express oh you know my return's so weak and you ask them how you know how long do you spend on your return and they say oh no 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 time practicing but as far as the the, the slice developing it do you remember what specifically you know when you first had jim hit slices like what sorts of things technically or strategically did you have to work on with him in order to make his slice uh back end
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it's a process, you know, we started from, we started from step one really because at that time when we first started with him, he, he basically didn't have a slice backhand at all. And so, you know, Jose, Jose and myself really spent time with him from early on working on the basic fundamentals of developing a slice backhand and, um, you know, from the take back to, you know, how to situate your feet to, point of contact, the follow through, uh, where the racket face was going to be. I mean, it was, it was basically like teaching lessons. And then, you know, Jim obviously was an extremely skilled player, despite the unconventionalness of some of his strokes. And, um, you know, we committed, like we said, to hitting, to hitting balls every single day, Jim and I would go to the court and, uh, we'd hit 10 or 15 minutes of, you know, backhand slices cross court to each other. And, uh, and then I would run around and hit forehands and he would hit slices and then we would have him hit slice backhands down the line. And, and, um, you know, I would point out flaws and, and also try and highlight the positive things that he did when he was making changes on it. And over the course of time, I mean, it just continued to get better and better and better. And and it ended up becoming, it ended up becoming just a a very effective stroke form that, uh, that he used, he used a ton. I I would even say that at some points, in his career as he started to use it that he may have relied on it too much at
0: times and brad so when you were both developing jim's slice and it's it's hard to implement uh changes to you know your technique in actual matches so did you have him not slice in matches for a while uh, or anything like that until he nailed down the technique in his sleep and practice and then you know he could slice or did he did he still use his slice in matches and he was just able to change it easily
2: no it was one of the one of the great things about jim was that he was not afraid in any way shape or form to implement new things into his game within match play and so he started using the slice right away you know and and it sometimes it was (laughs) sometimes it was effective sometimes it wasn't very effective within that situation but as long as we felt that he was picking and choosing the right moments to be slicing, slicing from the right position in the court, attempting to hit the ball to the right spots in the court, that 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 was the right thing to be doing and and to not worry so much about the outcome. And he was willing to make that, he was willing to make that adjustment and, you know, typical of Jim, he found a way early on to make it be effective uh, no matter what It, it, I think when he first started slicing it, it wasn't very pretty but he still found a way to put balls in play and, and make it be effective. And it was, it, it just, like I said, I mean, I think it, it it was the single biggest thing that gave him an opportunity to achieve number one ranking.
0: Awesome. Very interesting that I'm I'm sure a lot of people, including myself, did not know or realize how important the the slice back end was to Jim's career there. And obviously, uh, Brad, if I asked you about all the players you coached, then we would spend probably 20 hours plus (laughs) on the podcast. But I wanted to get into Kevin Anderson, uh, his career and and you working with him. So kind of a similar question with Jim, but how did you and Kevin end up deciding to work together?
2: Yeah, that that one was, you know, I give I'll give the credit to uh, a little bit more of the credit to Brad Dancer, who's Kevin's, you know, Kevin's coach from the University of Illinois. Brad had been the coach for a, for a few years at Fresno State, and he and I got to know each other during that time. And then he went to Illinois, and and he and Kevin are still very close. They have they have a very good relationship, and and um, he's definitely someone that that Kevin turns to, you know, to ask for advice. And and when he was when he was looking for coaches and considering possibilities last year after he and Neville, uh, Godwin split up split up. He, my name came up and you know, he, he discussed it with Brad. And I think Brad was, was someone who, um, had some positive things to say about me and felt that, that our relationship could be good and that it might be a good fit. And Brad actually called me, uh, last year during the off season, I was in, uh, I was in Orlando training with, uh, Bjorn Tertangelo and a couple of the other guys from the USTA and Brad actually called me, kind of feeling things out to, to see where my level of interest might be if Kevin were interested in in uh, hiring me. And he put us in contact. Kevin and I then had a few text exchanges, a couple of phone conversations, and um, and then that that resulted in me going down and spending a few days with him in uh, in Delray Beach, which was interesting because at the time Kevin Kevin keeps things pretty close to his vest, and and I really. I finished a couple of days that we spent on court and I really had no real feel for where he was at. And he actually, uh, he called like two days later and and said that he felt like everything had been really, really good on the court and fantastic. And I was kind of like, okay, wow. Well, I had no idea really where he was with, with what his thinking was in that kind of situation and, and stuff. So at that point we started kind of talking about, you know, the details of, of what he was looking for and, and all those kind of things and got in touch with his agent kind of, uh, hammered out, Contract details and stuff like that, and and made a commitment, and and then we started working together on a full time basis from from there, right after Christmas, really last year.
0: Awesome, awesome stuff, and obviously clearly doing uh, amazing things together. So we talked about Jim's personality, practice court at least. So you know how different is Kevin's uh, personality. How wh- how would you classify uh, Kevin's demeanor?
2: Yeah, you know, I think Kevin and Jim have a lot of similarities in relationship to those kind of things. I mean, Kevin is very very committed to what he's doing on the court he hates wasting time on the court he wants to he wants to get the most out of every practice session out of every minute that he's that he's um on the court for those practice sessions you know and and every ball there are some differences I've, i've there's some you know kevin trains in a way that was a little bit different for me and i had to make some adjustments in relationship to that just from the standpoint that he's very specific in what he does in his in his training jim was a little bit more of a a grinder mentality. Jim just Jim wanted to go out and he wanted to just bang balls for two hours straight, you know, and and just work for every single ball he could. Kevin really likes to create situations on the court and work on very specific aspects of his game, and um, and get reps um, based on based on certain particular plays that we see and those kind of things. And so that was a little that was a little different scenario kevin rarely hits more than four or five five or six balls in a row before before an exchange ends jim on the other hand used to do a ton of two-on-one training where it was like just constant balls just you know as soon as a ball ended you fed another ball in instantaneously and he was just going from corner to corner and up and back and chasing down balls you know and just working from that standpoint kevin likes to hit two or three balls based on a very specific scenario and train within that and then move on to another scenario that's going to be a little bit different and maybe you know involves a different aspects whether that be turns or ground strokes or transition, volley, whatever it is, but but working on very specific aspects of what's going on with this game.
0: Makes a lot of sense, Brad. And I guess a couple of follow-up questions based on what you just said. One is, you, know, you mentioned how Jim loved to just gr- grind it out and, and hit a ton of balls, whereas Kevin you know, l- likes to have a very efficient and, and specific drills and, and has short points. So... It, would you say that for tennis players out there who are more of the consistent types, they should be training like Jim and then Ke- the, those who are power players should train like Kevin or is it more of a shift that we should be training more like Kevin nowadays or what, what's your take on that?
2: You know, it's, it's a good question. I, to be honest with you, I've had to adjust a little bit more to the way Kevin trains. And, and I, I definitely see the benefits of, of how he trains, the specificity of how he trains. I I think it's really good. It's something that works for him. I don't don't necessarily think that it's a system that I would recommend for every single tennis player. I I don't necessarily think that it's a system within a lot of the other guys at the tour level even are training with as much specificity as Kevin is. But, But it's the way he likes to do it. And it's obviously being very effective, you know, in what we're doing so i've I, i've kind of had to adapt to that with recognizing how he wants to train and what he wants to do on a day-to-day basis and and then organized practice around those things
0: yeah that makes sense brad and i mean do you well i'm sure you probably do but how does kevin come up with or maybe you both come up with the the specific drills that you're doing is it based on a match the previous day something that he wants to work on or is it just i mean how does how does that uh how do you both determine these these drills
2: i mean it depends a little bit whether we're in a training block uh, you know which has longer time frame or if we're at a tournament or you know leading up to a tournament right away Uh, you know if it's if it's um, more tournament-oriented, then we're being a little bit more specific based on the opponent that he's going to play and, and the things that he wants to do be the most effective that he possibly can against that opponent. If it's in a training block, then we're, we're taking a little bit more of a, a macro vision of what he's doing and how he, we want him to play overall within his game and, and making adjustments and working on areas within his game in relationship to that.
0: Yeah, Good stuff, Brad. And, and so I, I read an article that, that uh, where you were interviewed at, at Wimbledon where Kevin had an incredible tournament and reached the finals and you talked about the importance of self-containment and conserving energy. Um, so, and, and, and you know, during Kevin's career, at least it, within the past couple years, I, I have recognized him fist pumping almost on every point and and being very positive and doing well, but then you did mention the importance of self containment and conserving energy. So, can you talk more about that approach and how it can help tennis players?
2: Yeah, I I think that it's been pretty well documented that Jevin last year, you know, made a a clear decision to try and be a little more emotive on the on the court, you know, pumping his fist and and getting cranked up and pumped up after points and. And that's where he was when we first started in January of last year, you know, and I recognized early on, probably at the Australian open, he played Kyle Edmund in the first round and had a tough five set match. And, and I just felt that the, um, the emotional energy that he was committing to what he was doing um, was really draining on him. Um, it, it was almost like, it was almost like being manic depressive a little bit where he would get up so much after a particular point And then, you know you you play the next point and the other guy comes and hits a an early winner or you know you make an unforced error and then you go down the other direction a little bit and it was just this constant kind of up and down emotionally and i I just felt that it was very draining for him and and so from that point we started having some discussions and uh, about trying to find a more balanced approach to what was going on and how he was doing things and and it really kind of came to a it kind of came to a head at the, at the French open when he lost to uh, Diego Schwartzman after being up two sets to love and actually serving for the match in the third. And after that match, which was, which was a very um, emotional match anyway, um, he came off the court and he actually was, he was talking about how he just felt that, that he was really drained, really um, almost spent physically because of the emotional energy that he was committing to what he was doing. and and um, we spent some time again discussing all that and talking about that and and I think I think if you look at him at Wimbledon in comparison to the first half of the year, you'll see a much a much calmer, a much more balanced presentation. Right from the very first match at Wimbledon. I, I think he did a phenomenal job of of being able to create an a positive energy and a positive atmosphere for himself out there competing without necessarily the same highs and lows that he was having emotionally earlier in the year. And, um, and, and that was, for me, the balance that we were really looking for. And, and he did a phenomenal job there. And then through the, through the rest of the year, um, just continued to, to get better and better and better at maintain, maintaining that kind, of, that kind of an approach. And that wasn 't to say that he wasn't still being emotive you know and pumping fists and getting pumped up about what was going on in the matches at times it was just happening in a more in a more logical manner I think you know where the score dictated that made more sense in a way for him to get fired up because of the situation previously he he was um, he was fist pumping at you know like love 15 or 15 love in, in the second game or the third game of the first set. And, you know, I think that 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 was something he needed within the process to get to where he is at this point. So not like that was a negative necessarily, but it just got to the point where it became something that that he he needed to balance a little bit better.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Kind of just. You know, enforcing, reinforcing that he really that he believes in himself and everything. But then now he knows, you know, he that he has those skills, and now he just needs to kind of balance and keep his energy so that he can have more energy to play the best that he can. It's funny too because it reminds me of one of my teammates at a college tennis tournament at American University, where John, my good buddy, he was playing and he was. Every single point, it was fist pumping and saying, come on, and he was like up 2-1 against a a good player, and then he lost uh, 2-1, so clearly tired himself out as well. But as far as, uh, you know, in that article, you mentioned substituting fist pumping with a stronger physical presence, so... What's an example that maybe the listeners can, can, uh, can, uh, act upon, you know, let's say instead of fist pumping and everything, what's an example of a stronger physical presence that we can use?
2: Well, I think that one of the things that we, um, well, one of the things that, that, uh, Kevin, Kevin's involved with another guy, uh, who's based in Florida, where he is also Jay Bosworth and Jay, Jay had, uh, Jay had a presentation of, some of that information that I think was extremely important for Kevin where he talked about the difference between um celebrations and affirmations celebrations being you know you hit a good shot you win a point and you you pump your fist and you know you potentially throw in a you know come on or something like that and affirmations being leading into the to the next point uh, giving yourself a little slap on the leg or something else to say, like, "Here we go! Come on! Let's let's get this point! Let's get fired up here!" You know, and and understanding and recognizing the difference between those celebrations and affirmations was an important thing. We took that information and we we tried to create a scenario where celebrations happened based on. Um, you know, moments in the match where it, where it just happened on a more uh, organic basis. You weren't forcing that to happen. It just was created because the score and the situation kind of uh, dictated that. And it just came out naturally because you won a big point. And the affirmations, we, we tried to create a scenario where we talked about the fact that body language is a constant affirmation. And we want constant affirmations. We want affirmations happening on a non-stop basis, um, where you're being positive with yourself, and you're you're pushing yourself to, to you know uh, make a presentation that tells the other guy that you're there and that you're motivated and that you're competing at the uh, at the utmost of your ability. And so those affirmations stopped being so much verbal. Kevin was being very verbal in his affirmations previously. And sometimes his tone, his tone and his affirmations were almost like him kind of getting on himself in a, in a bit of a negative way, even though the affirmation is supposed to be a positive input to yourself. So we, we kind of translated those verbal affirmations to positive body language and making that body language and how he was carrying himself and how he was presenting himself with his body language on the court was an affirmation and is an affirmation for every single point. And I think that was a very significant thing that he that he started embracing, you know towards the second half of the year. and it really it really clicked in for him and started being something that he understood and was really able to apply to what he was doing.
0: Really appreciate that, Brad. And yeah, Kevin keeps climbing up the rankings, so it's clear clearly is uh working very well. No, we've been talking a while, Brad, but uh I'll try to sneak in a couple more if uh if you don't mind. But um as far as Kevin's physical fitness, so I know we're I, I guess we're still in the off season, I don't know, but what has uh Kevin been working on regarding his uh physical fitness lately?
2: <laughs> you know, the, the funny answer it would be funny to, to our to the guys on our team would be his his uh swings, kettlebell swings. It it's kind of funny. Kevin changed physios midway through the year and um, and the guy who's come on board with us is a is a young guy named Daniel Pohl. he's a German guy and I think Daniel's been a phenomenal addition to our team and to Kevin's fitness training and and I think that the biggest change that he's made and the and the, the changes that he's continuing to make have been a much greater focus on his strength training i would say that from the time that Daniel's come on board that Kevin is, is a much stronger athlete than he was previously. And when you take a guy who's six foot eight and you can make him that much stronger, first of all, it's imposing for the other guys, but it's also important for Kev because, you know, at six foot eight, his stability and his, his explosiveness in his first step are really key elements to to him being a better mover. And, uh, and if Kevin's moving well with his, with his wingspan, if he's then being, you know, really explosive in what he's doing with his footwork, he's pretty tough to deal with on the tennis court. And I think Daniel's done a great job in implementing more emphasis in those areas with, with Kevin's game.
0: Awesome stuff. Awesome stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I've, so I've had Alistair McCall on the show a couple of times. I think he might've been Kevin's former physio who, correct me if I'm wrong though, who went to uh, Hyun Chung's team but uh, yeah, that's really cool to to hear about the more recent uh, focus on on strength training. Um, very important for sure. Someone like Kevin, especially. And does
2: Kevin have
0: a morning routine? Uh, and if so, uh, what is that routine? If you know.
2: <laughs> I mean, he has he has a number of different routines. I don't know if I'm going to go into the specifics of that. I'll say this. Kevin is a consummate professional. Sorry. Kevin is a consummate professional in what he does day in and day out. And he organizes pretty much everything he does on a daily basis around giving himself the best possible chance that he can perform at his best in practice and in playing matches. So, you know, his, his diet, his nutrition, his, uh, his rest and sleep, you know, how he takes care of his body at this point in his career, you know, at 32 years of age. You know, taking care of his body is a is really a key element to to what he wants to do. That's also part of Daniel's responsibility because he's the physio. So, you know, Kevin spends a fair amount of time with Daniel, helping him and working with him. Sometimes doing a morning routine of activation and and other type of things to to kind of get him going and make sure that he's as prepared and ready as he can be to to play and practice or a match. Um, so there's a lot of different variations. It kind of depends on where he is, you know, and what he's been doing leading up to those things, level of stiffness, level of soreness, how much he's been training, what he's been doing. It, it, it always varies. Uh, so, it, it, but he's, he's really in tune with all that stuff for sure.
0: Gotcha. Appreciate that insight there, Brad. So as far as Kevin, um, I mean, Kevin is an incredible uh, top, uh, pretty much top five player. What are Kevin's most important traits uh, in your mind, at least that make Kevin a top, uh, top player on the tour?
2: not a secret by anyone's i mean kevin's one of the best servers on the tour you know with that as a as kind of the keystone of his game he becomes a very very difficult guy to to break you know if you if you can hold serve consistently at the men's level you're going to have a chance to be competitive in the matches and and so that puts him in a situation where he's he's competitive on a day-to-day basis with pretty much everyone if kevin serves well he's, he's going to be in a, in the matches most of the time. Then you, you you're able to take that and translate that to greater freedom to, to be a little bit more aggressive or a little bit more tactical at times with what you're doing on return games, you know and and like most of the guys that are big servers, if if Kevin can get ahead in a set, it just puts an enormous amount of pressure on the other guys. you know that's the that's the number one basis. You take that and then you combine that with the fact that technically and mechanically, Kevin is really, really sound in what he does. He can stay with virtually anybody off the ground. Um, and at the same time, he's, he's got one of the biggest balls out there uh, off the ground from both the forehand and the backhand side. So he's, he's taking time from the other guys most of the time, and, and he creates a scenario where he's, he's forcing guys to have to deal with what he's doing a lot of the time. And, and so it's just he becomes, a tough guy to, he becomes a tough guy to beat under those scenarios.
0: For sure, Brad. I mean, it, it really amazes me every time I see Kevin play, and I've seen him a couple times at the City Open uh, near where I'm from. his ground strokes, you know, just for a, a taller guy, just really, <laughs> it's really amazing how good they are. So uh, it's great stuff. But Brad, what is next for for you and, and Kevin in uh, 2019?
2: Well, in the immediate future, we're leaving right around Christmas. Kevin's starting out the year at an exhibition event in Abu Dhabi where you're you're guaranteed three matches so he'll get three three good matches there to kind of like you know get himself in a competitive mode. And then we go from there to India. He's playing the, uh, the tour event in, uh, Pune, India. And then we go from there to Melbourne. We'll spend a week in Melbourne training prior to the, to the start of the Australian open and then play and then play the Aussie open, you know, and given the fact that he lost their first round last year, that's a big opportunity for Kev with points and, and being able to kind of like solidify where he's at very early in the year. So obviously, like everybody is, we're hoping for some good success
0: there. Awesome. Yeah, and I'm sure he'll, he'll do great there. And uh, yeah, he's doing great things. And I heard about him and Kelsey having that Pause for the Cause uh, event, uh, which is really cool too. Just wanted to mention that. So one more question for you, Brad, and then my my classic question and the podcast after that. But what are three books that you would gift to a friend to help them play better tennis?
2: Oh, three books. That's... um. That's an easy one for me, actually. The number one book that I recommend for players, which is going to be kind of, it's odd in a way, but it's really not, is a book called The Tao of Pooh. It's a book by an author author named Benjamin Hoff H-O-F-F. It's not a book about tennis. It's a book that basically is a fundamental analysis and breakdown and presentation of the concepts of Taoism. And I believe that as a tennis player, if you read that book with a tennis mentality and you you apply all the, the, the concepts and ideas that are presented in it um, to what you're doing on the tennis court, that it will help you enormously as a tennis player. I've recommended it to a lot of different people over the years as tennis players to read that book. So that would be number one. Number two would probably be a book by Jim Lair called In Pursuit of Excellence, I think is the the name of the book. I could be wrong about that one. I think that's actually a book by by a different author. But I, I'm a I'm a big fan of uh of Jim Lair, of Dr. Lair's uh presentation on on how to use the the time between points and the and the situations that occur on the court and, and how to make yourself a better player. And the third one, third one would probably be, again, it has nothing to do with the technical or the tactical aspects of tennis, but it's just my favorite book in relationship to tennis. And I do think that anybody that wants to be serious about the game and wants to be the best player they can possibly be should become a student of the game. And, and in becoming a student of the game, you should recognize and understand and know a lot about the history of the game. And this book is, in my opinion, the best book ever written about tennis it's called a handful of summers was was written by a guy named gordon forbes whose um, whose son gavin forbes was jim courier's agent actually but it's a book about gordon's experiences as a 18 19 year old young south african traveling the world and playing the circuit uh back in the days when laver and rosewall and uh lou Hode and emerson and those guys were playing and it's just a great It's a great read. It's an amazing book. gives you a million names of guys that played back in those days, stories and anecdotes about things that went on with the players back in that time frame. And, and I just think it's it's a book that anybody that, that really loves the
0: game should read. Awesome. Really appreciate those book suggestions, Brad. I'll definitely check them out. And I encourage you to check them out as well. And I'll have links to all those books on, on the show notes page at tennisfiles.com slash 76. So, Brad, to to ask you your final question uh, of, of the episode, and it's been a fantastic one. What is one key tip that you can give our audience to help them improve their tennis games?
2: Ooh, I probably just said it. I probably just said it a second ago, uh, you know, the the most important thing that I think anyone ever said to me going back to the coach that I talked about a long time ago, early on that, that I had as it was my junior college coach, Rich Anderson. He always said to us that if you want to be a great player, become a student of the game. And what that meant was to understand every possible aspect of the game that you can imagine from the equipment, the history of the game, the, the, technical aspects of of the game you know how to hit a forehand how to hit a backhand volleys transition everything to not leave anything unturned from that standpoint you know is to is to really become a student of the game and that's something that I think I really embraced when I was there and I think it's one of the reasons that I've become a successful coach over the years was because I I feel like I've even at this point in my career that i I still feel like I have an open mind about learning things about the game because I still am a student of the game. I'm always open to new ideas and new concepts and want to keep learning and want to keep getting better.
0: Wow, uh, there's such amazing advice, incredible advice and everyone needs to really rewind and and listen to that again. Thank you Brad for that. And thank you also Brad for I mean spending uh, a large chunk of your time today with us on the Tennis Falls podcast. I really do appreciate it and uh I was you know really excited to Learned that you, you'd be willing to come onto the podcast. And I really enjoyed this interview with you. And I wish you and Kevin and, and your whole team nothing but the best moving forward. And I look forward to, uh, you know, rooting you all on in 2019 and beyond. And uh, wish you nothing but the best.
2: Thanks so much, man. I really appreciate it.
0: All right, I really hope you enjoyed that episode with Brad Stein on the Tennis Files podcast. Uh, again, Brad, big ups to you and thank you so much for taking time out of your day to speak with me. I really enjoyed it and I'm sure the the audience is really grateful that you shared your insights into coaching style and diving deep into the careers of some of the best players in the world. And I would really enjoy it if you would subscribe to the Tennis Files podcast. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode and the, all the other great episodes, uh, 75 of them before this one, by going to tennisfiles.com slash iTunes and subscribing there, hitting the subscribe button or just subscribing through any of the podcast apps that you use to listen to the show. I would really appreciate that. And as I mentioned during the show, you can find all the links to that were mentioned during the show, including the excellent books that Brad suggested at tennisfiles.com slash 76. And again, best wishes to Brad and Kevin and the team in 2019 and I wish them nothing but the best finally I'd like to leave you with a quote as I often do at the end of the show and I'm going to be a bit of a copycat here and re-mention the quote that Brad just mentioned that he got from his coach which is if you want to be a great player be a student of the game really love that quote Thanks again for tuning in to yet another episode of the Tennis Files podcast. I think you'll be hearing this the day after Christmas if you get it downloaded to your podcast app immediately. Otherwise, probably a little later than that. Happy holidays. And I, I hope that you have a fantastic season, a holiday season with your family and enjoy it and be grateful for All the things that we have in life, including tennis and great people to learn from. Thanks so much again for listening to the show today. And we'll see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files podcast. Take care, everyone.
1: Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.